This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. It's time for football. Just for kicks on BFM 89.9. Hello and welcome to the wide world of football. We're going to be looking at the Premier League and we're going to be looking at some European leagues and also the Malaysian game. And uh, our two pundits, we've got two up front today. We have Sean Mahotra. Hi, hi everyone. It's good to be back after a very grueling weekend. Uh, he's, he's happy. <laughs> and uh, Kishnan Sundaresan. Can you see the smile on our faces, Scam? Yeah. yeah. Can we you have, see the smiles? We have two Manchester United <laughs> fans here and they're very happy. Which And also, therefore, we're actually going to, not going to start with what should be the league match we're going to start with the united one before that i just want to say our listener got, got in touch with us again on twitter okay mm-hmm. <laughs> our confirmed listener <laughs> and uh he, he was asking about um he, he was wondering if people's uh, predictions have been going right the only person we we have who's been tracking his predictions is des corkill and he says he's 57 percent accuracy mm. that's pretty impressive numbers that, that, that's good is it mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah pretty good early season small sample size looks good yeah. for now yeah what are you two you've not been tracking have you i've been uh, no <laughs> no I, I, yeah, yeah. It, it wouldn't bother it probably be a lot lower than that yeah. <laughs> yeah okay so des gets the prize so we're going to start with manchester united two brentford one we're going to talk the match but in a moment i want to talk something else manchester united related mm-hmm. uh the match first. You're both happy, uh, but it had shades of a uh, certain Champions League final. <laughs> Two goals scored in extra time. Yeah. Uh, Sean, you, you, that was a convincing display? I wouldn't say it was a convincing display. I think the first 45 minutes was, was poor from United's point of view. I think Brentford came with a very, very standard plan of Let's hit them on the counter, which is what most teams do now at Old Trafford. They will leave the gaps. They will make mistakes, which has been prevalent throughout the season when it comes to United's midfield. And it happened. And it was poor from from two players specifically, if you want to look at it. Casemiro giving away the ball in a very dangerous area. Onana has to have a stronger hand to that. And it goes in and it, I think no United fan would sit there and go, oh, wow, this is a surprise. Because it wasn't a surprise to me. What I liked in the second half was bringing on Ericsson, taking off Casemiro, pretty much putting Amrabat as the lone pivot. And I think you saw a huge change in how much mm. United controlled the yeah. game from that point on. Thing is, they had control, but it was nothing of substance, you know. It was like, yes, you have the ball, but what are you creating from it? It was in midfield for like 90% of the time. Now, what happened after the 90th minute? That is well, that's, that's, outstanding. That's <laughs> uh, winning in extra time... Mm. Uh, it it was a reminder of Fergie time. Yeah, that's a good sign, isn't it? Um, it it's not just the the thing about about this football matches. I I wouldn't go so as far as to draw large scale conclusions from it. Mm-hmm. I think United fans have been put under uh, situations where they've been forced to over analyze to to you know ponder the problems over the last few years and every match you're just breaking it down to the numbers to the positioning to the mistakes that it can be a very draining process and I, it's it's not right or wrong it's just draining and mm-hmm. and I, I just advise every united fan over the weekend um, and over the, this week right when it comes to this particular game just don't bother doing any of that <laughs> just don't bother because it's not like the problems have been solved yeah, so wow. you know that so just don't bother doing that just savor the moment 
and the narrative that comes along because it wasn't just an injury time comeback victory. Um, it was the way it was accomplished. It was the very fact that this particular result outcome and the way it was accomplished happened just a couple of days after it was announced that Sir Alex Ferguson's wife, mm-hmm. um, Cathy Ferguson, passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Cathy meant a lot to Sir Alex. Uh, yeah. One of the main reasons why Sir Alex continued to manage beyond 2002, if we remember yeah. uh, the story that, that Fergie wrote about in his, his biography. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's been a pillar of, of support for, for Sir Alex Ferguson. And, you know, and then, a, as and a then result... A Scottish player... Exactly. So when when you look at the narrative, right, a Scottish player scoring an injury time goal in what you could only brand as Fergie time Mm. um, to get United victory in a game they probably did not deserve to win. It's pure narrative and storylines and I just advise every United fan to enjoy that. Well, speaking of uh, narratives and storylines, I want to ask you to have you watched, well, I know the answer, the David Beckham documentary on Netflix. Yep. Yep. Uh, Three parts? Three parts. Four, 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 four parts. episodes. Yeah. Um, well, we all have. And uh, Sean, you uh, what, was it? Was it? Was it good too? Well, I can say a trip down memory lane. Do you ever watch him? Uh, of You're course. Too young. I mean, <laughs> when I grew up watching that United team, there's something my father always drilled into my head. You know, when I, as I got older, it's like that United team. You could look at the entire eleven, and you could say all of them are leaders, all of them can influence a game. Scholes, Keane, Giggs, Sheringham, so on, and Bex. But the most glamorous one, and Kish and I were saying this before, Bex had an aura about him. He was cool. He looked better than most of those players back then. And no one could cross a ball like him. No one could take a free kick like him back then. But when you see something in depth like this, for me as a United fan, of course, he brought me back down memory lane, and I was like, wow. There's one thing that stood out to me more than all of Beckham's achievements in that entire period, which was after the 98 World Cup, when he came back to to England and the abuse he was getting, how the United fans rallied for him at that time, which I think has become a very bygone thing now at Old Trafford, where if a player starts doing badly, and I'm guilty of this too, partially, I won't lie about it, where a player starts doing badly or poorly... You start booing. Do you boo at the TV screen? I don't screen? boo, I don't boo. <laughs> but a good example, which we'll go into later as well, if a player does badly, you don't want to contribute as the home crowd to making them probably play worse, yeah. right? Mm. You would want to galvanise them and push them forward. But instead, now you just see fans constantly berating them online, yeah. in the newspaper, in-game. But back then, when Bex had probably one of the worst periods of his career... The United fans were there for him. Same thing with Ronaldo when he came back yeah. after the whole kerfuffle with Rooney. Well, uh, Keish, um, was he a good footballer? I, I'd say I'd forgotten he played for AC Milan. Oh, he was, he was astonishingly good. I mean, he, the, the thing about Beckham is that um, when we talk about David Beckham and there's always this term that comes around. I remember having this conversation with a friend. I say, I think David Beckham is, is underrated. But a lot of people don't feel the same way because their reaction to it is always the fact that, hang on a minute, but everybody was talking about David Beckham. David Beckham was on everyone's TV screens, was on everyone's conversations, was in everyone's uh, uh, radio stations. So how can he be underrated? But I felt that David Beckham, the persona, David Beckham, the personality is probably fairly rated or overrated. But David Beckham, the footballer, mm. which I felt was often left, you know, 
behind the scenes because of all the other things that dominated Airways. He was a phenomenal footballer. If if he existed in modern football, I think he'd be one of those uh, marauding fullbacks. Yeah. In the way football is played today and the roles that fullbacks have in modern football, the ability to invert, the ability to overlap, the ability to put in crosses, um, take out set-piece situations, he would have been a phenomenal world-class fullback. He was an astonishingly good footballer and I just wish, and I, and I was saying this to you, I just wish the documentary put in a bit more effort into exploring what exactly caused the, the dip in form because he dipped relatively early. You know, it wasn't in his mid-30s or so, right? It was towards the late 20s. He started going on a dip and the performances started seeing a drop because before that, up till 2003, he was ridiculously good. And I don't think my favourite all-time David Beckham performance would not even be a Man United performance. It's that England-Greece performance. That free kick. I remember, mm. um, and, and you know, kick. I remember watching highlights of the game back then. I remember reading about it. I remember watching it much later. It's still an, an astonishing game of football. Yeah, yeah. So he's uh, he's not just a pretty James Ward Prowse then. Uh, and we move on. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we move on. So in a moment, we're going to be talking about Arsenal and Manchester City here on Just for Kicks on BFM 89.9. More football when we come back. Just for Kicks on BFM 89.9. Just for Kicks on BFM 89.9. Welcome to part two with myself and uh, Keisha and Sean. And now Arsenal 1, Manchester City 0. So older listeners will recognise 1-0 to the Arsenal. It's, uh, it was a very t- very typical what 1980s performance there from <laughs> Arsenal. Uh, Keish, uh, uh, no Saka still there. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't thrilled by this match. Yeah, I think this was a game where in terms of sheer quality on the pitch probably did not match up to the excitement of some previous Arsenal City games. I thought this was very calculated. Um, it was very tactical. It was very um, closely contested. And and you, you saw periods of frustrations from both sides. But at the end of the day, I felt that this was a game won in, in the substitutions that Mikel Arteta made. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really, really well managed. Everyone talks about Bukayo Saka's influence and how his absence was going to be so he felt and and Ateta just came up with this thing about playing Gabriel Jesus down the right which is something we've not seen very often and Arsenal fans were you know wondering halfway through the game yesterday hang on a minute why don't we see this more often why don't we rotate and give Saka a break and because Gabriel Jesus is clearly playing really well on the right uh, but the game changer was uh, the introduction of of Tomiyasu was the introduction of of Kai Havertz um, who came on and even Martinelli as well who came on uh, in the second half replacing Trossard um, these three players all three combined for the winning goal so, mm-hmm. and I was particularly happy for Kai Havertz who I feel is a real enigma in football mm. and uh, he's someone who's very misunderstood by the masses out there um, and I was just grateful that he was you know got a, the all-important assist in a game of this magnitude. He's got a reputation of being a big game player. He's caught the winning goal in the Champions League final, um, caught the assist in this all-important game yesterday. Um, and you could see the frustration. It got to it got to Pep, uh, mm-hmm. the post-match comments where he was saying that, look, the news isn't the fact that we've lost three games or two games in a row. The news is the fact that Arsenal, after 12 defeats against us, have finally managed to beat us. You tried to change his narrative. Yeah, you could see it getting to him and you could see it getting to the City players Mm -hmm. as well based on how they reacted on the pitch. So, uh, Sean, three three domestic defeats in a row for City. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it, it's over for them. That's <laughs> I, it. I, I think it's a it's a it's a feeling that Man City fans are not used to, where they they lose this many games so mm. early on. And the thing is, it, I don't think it's just about the losses; it's about how they've been playing. Normally, you have this excitement, rock and roll style football with Pep, but. Recently, without the likes of Rodri, without the likes of Kevin De Bruyne, I think Kevin De Bruyne is a massive miss because no one mm. replaces him in that team. And the fact that they don't have Ilkay Gundogan anymore, that entire midfield without them looks, I wouldn't say lost, but you don't have that same fluidity anymore. Matthias Nunes is new. He's not going to fill that slot straight away. Yeah. Asking Bernardo Silva yesterday to play in a much deeper role was a bit awkward for me to see. I haven't really seen much of him do that. And Kovacic, who I think should have been sent off. Should have been sent yeah. off if we're we're going by the letter of the law. Was lucky to stay on the field and had a horrid game. It's not something City fans are used to, but I said this last season as well. How often do City start the season well? It's how they finish the season. Yeah. It's always been that way. And everyone's going to highlight the fact that uh, Haaland had a horrid game, but that whole City team didn't play well. I think there was only one City player that I felt did well and was a shock was taken off was Rico Lewis. Mm. I thought he was the only one trying to, to push... At Arsenal, was the only one trying to press, trying to create, but Pep will be Pep. I'm very sure he's not worried about mm. this. He knows he's going to get Rodri back for the next game. He'll get it right. De Bruyne will be Do, back. When When is De, any word on De Bruyne's... Uh, I think he's supposed to be back by December or so, but yeah. it's a big injury, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? But okay. I don't think City fans should be worried. Yes, you lost to Arsenal, but... It's not the end of the world. It's, it's also a bit of a transition season, let's yeah. be real. I mean, they lost Gundogan, yeah. uh, which I think is a big deal. Irreplaceable. He's, he's been a really, really good player. And based off the two players that City bought, Nunes and Jeremy Doku, both of whom are dribblers and ball carriers, mm-hmm. which is not very Pep-like. So I think he's evolving the City team to to counter the culture that is becoming dominant. You look at, at Ateta's footballing team, you look at De Zerbi's footballing team and how and he needs a new identity to sort of, you know, drive the team in a different direction. It'll take a bit of time. Mm-hmm. But like I said, we've seen the late season search before, yep. so uh, I wouldn't rule them and, out yet. And he's really good at evolving. He's insane, yeah. yeah. Evolving teams. So anyway, they sit third now, two points behind the league leaders who are uh, I don't think anyone would have guessed this before. <laughs> um, Tottenham Hotspur. It was Luton Town nil. Tottenham Hotspur won. Um, I, I didn't write notes for this at all. <laughs> uh, Sean pointed out, pretty blank space, and therefore my memory is blank. Um, mm. Somebody scored a goal for Spurs, and I haven't written it down. <laughs> uh, Devine, the, the thing is, I was thinking about this as the game was going on, right? Even when Spurs went down to 10 men, losing Basuma very early on in the first half, not at any point in that game did I think, oh, Spurs are in trouble here. Mm. Because they play an expensive kind of football where they press high, they play Mm. fluid football, they attack you, they show no fear. Whilst Luton, and I may be harsh here because I'm on Luton a lot every week, they cherry pick at whatever opportunities they can get, which Mm. it, it makes sense. Because right, they're not they're going to be the team that presses you high. They're not the team that's going to play through you. They're going to have to take their moments. And yet again, I don't think they really took any moment in that game. Spurs made it look easy even with 10 men. To me, again, Luton are a sure thing to go down. Spurs are on a surge. Are they, they going to win? Are they going to win the season? Uh, no, I, 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 don't, I don't know if they're going to win the season. But at this point, I... 
I mean, they're genuine contenders for at least a second spot. It's not even about Champions League anymore, judging by the way they play, how quickly they've adapted. It's not just the results that's impressive for what Spurs. Even if Spurs lost this game, it wouldn't change, uh, like, for me, it wouldn't change my mind about how they've been playing because it's the way they've been playing. And we've seen that adaptation from from a team that was largely con- conservative and boring and mm. dull under three previous managers, Conte, um, Nuno Espirito Santo and Jose Mourinho, three conservative managers. You don't just change that style of play in an instant. But and yet you do. And just done that. <laughs> and that's the craziest part of this Spurs story. So, uh, if if it all goes according to plan, bar, you know, no injury crisis, or you know, if it all goes according to plan, it's not even about the Champions League anymore. It's about pushing for a top two position. Mm-hmm. I, I would imagine Spurs fans would also be saying FA Cup. I mean, yeah, there's that, there's that, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's, uh, I've, you know, I'm, I think I've made my... Uh, allegiances. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a fan of any particular football team. He's a fan of Ange this season. I am season. such a fan of Ange. I think it's remarkable what, what he's done. And lifelong fan for the last two months. So uh, Brighton 2, Liverpool 2. Um, hectic. Yeah. And, but excellent match. And um, I, I had the first goal from Brighton. I thought it was fantastic. And, and, and I do not know. I, I mean, there's something about... Liverpool's midfield that I, I said a few weeks ago that it's going to take time for them to gel together to make this work but something I've not liked seeing so far from that Liverpool team is seeing Alexis McAllister play in a number 6 role I feel it's a very strange role for him to be playing because you saw how he played with Brighton last season he was pretty much a perfect number 10 for them linking up play at times he would drop to an 8 he would contribute to the attack a lot for him to be playing in this deeper role now I'm not putting it on him mainly for the first goal. I think it was badly cleared and everything. But I don't think he can fulfill that role as a number six currently in that team. Yeah, I think he's not not the all-action number six that Liverpool have grown accustomed to seeing in the last few years in the form of Fabinho. Or even sometimes when um, a Jordan Henderson plays as the deepest guy. They're a lot more aggressive. Whereas McAllister is more of a tempo setter, Mm -hmm. which works against teams where Liverpool generally dominate possession and are not under intense pressure but when you've got teams like Brighton running at you and putting you under pressure that's where you lose a bit of of composure I thought this was the sort of game where I, I assumed they would have had you know a Wataru Endo on the mm-hmm. pitch or perhaps even a, a, a Gravenberch mm-hmm. on the pitch just to give a bit more you know defensive aggression and solidity but I agree with you I think that's that's something to ponder for Jürgen yeah. Klopp McC- McAllister's profiling I, I I can't help wondering there's a lot of um Salah has to sort of pull them out of things. Mm. Salah has to come up with the goods to sort to make them happen. And I can't help thinking when I'm watching Liverpool this season, th- they're comfortably in fourth. Uh, I I do not doubt that they're top five. And yet I am not convinced. Uh, transitional, yet another transitional season. Uh, what are we transitioning to? Because Salah can't go on forever. I think it's... Okay, the biggest change to that team is their midfield. We've been saying it to the start of the season. Pretty much everyone from that they had in midfield last season is gone. Everyone they have in midfield now is new. Dominic Soboslai has been, to me, the highlight of that mm. Liverpool team so far. He brings you so much energy, ball-playing ability. He has an eye for a goal, but... It takes time and I don't think any of us here would doubt that Klopp will figure it out for his midfield. And the thing is, 
these players are only going to get better over time. That's how most of these players have been. They all fit a profile that is required at Liverpool. I highly doubt come six months from now, McAllister is still going to be playing in this number six role. I highly doubt that. They still have Thiago Alcantara who hasn't come back from injury. He'll come back. He'll probably fill in that role if able to. But I have no worries in this Liverpool team in the sense where I know they're still capable of scoring goals. They'll let in goals. Yeah. That's going to happen. They're always going to have goals in them. Yeah, but yeah. they have Nunes, who suddenly picked up a lot of form. Cody Gakpo, who I think was injured for the weekend's game, he's come into form. Salah's back to his usual Diego self Jota again. Is yeah. They, they have goals DS. in them. Yeah. So, uh, before we move on then, Liverpool are going to finish higher than Brighton, are they? I would think so. Yeah, I, I, yeah. yeah I'd probably say that. Yeah, yeah I'd probably okay. say that. Yeah. All right. Ashran, you'd be happy to hear that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want to turn to West Ham 2, Newcastle United 2. Uh, late equaliser there, very exciting. And when I was watching it, it was like the two teams were exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like when you leave the FIFA on the, on the Nintendo on to play itself <laughs> and you just watch it play itself. <laughs> Uh, I I couldn't really distinguish one from the other, which is not a bad thing. Yeah, I think there was a bit of a. I mean, and, and to be fair, understandable. The the first part of the the half, which I felt where um, Newcastle looked slightly off the pace, and it's understandable given the week they had, mm-hmm. an astonishing week for mm, Newcastle, guess, right? Yeah, and it's yeah. it, it's the highs of the absolute highs of the highs that he could have experienced. Um, all the emotions spent on that incredible victory over PSG that you could feel that they were just trying to recover from that win in the first portion. But then they picked it up. They picked it up and, and they eventually got the two goals and it wasn't for the if it wasn't for the late equaliser, they, they would have won the game comfortably. Um, no need for any, any panic button or say. Uh, even the style of play from Newcastle as well, I agree with you. Given what we saw in midweek, against PSG mm-hmm. which is not even I'm not even talking about the goals I'm yeah. talking about the intensity mm-hmm. that they brought the way they were you know they were absolute absolutely closing down the PSG players uh, every single time they were trying to pass the ball around we did not we barely saw that against mm-hmm. West Ham and I think that's understandable uh, given that they're also going through a bit of an injury situation mm-hmm. some of the players are absent so it's largely the same squad who you know had to work their socks off in midweek so understandable um, but a positive result nonetheless for Newcastle I think it's a positive result for West Ham and I just wanted to add in that I'm extremely happy to see Mohamed Kudus come up with a goal Mm. I'm a huge fan of Mohamed Kudus the boy brings so much energy and I think he's only going to get better and better and I don't think he'll be at West Ham for long because I think he will be playing if you put him in a Brighton S team or a Liverpool kind of team the boy is going to shine but it's so nice to see him doing well well you know being being with West Ham is not a bad thing. No, I mean, no, it's, no. It's, it's, it's not about. It's not a bad thing per se. It's it's a fit fit mm-hmm. question. Because for example, right, last okay. year, New, David Moyes and Newcastle. Sorry, David Moyes and West Ham signed arguably one of the most coveted strikers in Serie A, Gianluca Scamacca. Yeah, everyone expected him to come on and turn on the style. But he came and struggled under a David Moyes system. Mm-hmm. So I think the Kudus transfer. There's a bit of skepticism around whether is he best fitted for a David Moyes team. Yeah. And so far, we've seen shades of positivity and long may it continue. Mm. Okay. And uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going we're gonna to discuss something which is very rare on this show, a victory for Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it may be the only time we ever do it. No, I don't think it will be. Here on Just For Kicks on BFM 89.9. More football when we come back. Just For Kicks on BFM 89.9. Just For Kicks on BFM 89.9. 
Welcome back to part three with myself, Cam Raslan, there's Sean Mahotra and there's Kishnan Sundaresan. And now, uh, Sean, uh, let's start with you. Uh, Burnley one, Chelsea four. Uh, <laughs> I think everyone's been saying to me, and I've been saying, no, Chelsea are going to crash and burn, it'd be a disaster. But everyone's been <laughs> saying, no, give them time, they'll, they'll come good, Pochettino's a good coach. And, I mean, it's Burnley. But uh, Chelsea, Chelsea finally coming good. I mean, Sterling, I thought, was just fantastic. I think, I mean, I'm not taking anything away from Chelsea's big victory and Poch needed this and Chelsea needed this. But and yet you're about to take everything no, no, away. No, I'm just saying that the Vincent Company needs to get to a point where this style of football that he really wants to hammer home for Burnley might have to come to an abrupt stop. Because if you keep playing this way against especially the bigger teams who know how to, to exploit you in these situations, you're going to constantly get hurt. And it's happened again and again and again. Mm. Yeah, you went up 1-0, but how do you... In, in situations like that, let's say a, 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 a team of Burnley's class or Burnmouth or whatever were 1-0 up against the likes of Chelsea, what would they do? They would drop 10 men behind the ball, play a very strong low block, make it frustrating for the, uh, the opposition team and maybe grind out a win or at least a draw. Now, with Vincent Company, that doesn't happen. Mm. With Burnley, that doesn't happen. It's, we get one, let's try and get two, let's try and get three, let's keep playing the way we want to keep playing. But defensively, it's it's all over the place. It reminds me so much of how Bielsa's leads used to be. Mm. It was, let's go all out, let's go attack, let's keep playing nice football from midfield to attack. But in defence, it's completely lacking. There's gaps everywhere. And Chelsea may not be at their very best currently, but they exploited every situation. And the, honestly, the four goals that Chelsea scored, they could have scored w- way more. Yeah. Way, way more. It's a great win for Chelsea. But I look at it as Vincent Company is on, on a lot of borrowed time at this moment I, in time. And I, I just thought, watching it, that the Burnley players just looked slower. Um, I, I don't know if it's slow. I, I partially agree with Sean. I think it's it's the style of play that is holding them back. It's leaving them very exposed. Um, it's a lot, lot of high-risk uh, stuff. And when it comes to situations like this, it's always fascinating to see whether the club and the manager is on the same bandwagon through the good and the bad or not. Because you've had examples of you know clubs from the championship trying to, you know, uh, assume a style of play and identity that gets them promoted. And then a few weeks or a few months into the season, things don't go well. They hit the panic button, sack the coach and go on a completely different tangent altogether. But we've also seen teams that have tried and really stick with their managers. For Forest, example, Nottingham Forest. Not Leeds well. uh, even Leeds. Yeah. But to be fair, Leeds, because things were doing well uh, yeah. for Bielsa in the first season. It wasn't until the second season when he started crumbling. But we, we saw it with Forest mm. through all their horrendous struggles last year. We saw a, a conviction from from the ownership uh, with the manager and to the point where they, was, it was almost, they were almost, they didn't say it explicitly, but they were almost saying that even if we get relegated, it's fine. But we want to stick with this project. So even if we get relegated, we go down and we attempt to come back. So I don't know what's the situation at Burnley. If that's the case, then fine. Do what you have to do. Ride through this wave of difficulty. 
insist on your identity and your style of play and if if you're open to getting relegated but I, if I, you're going to hit the panic button soon then I'm not sure what company is uh, doing Kishnan Sundaresan and his panic button said <laughs> <laughs> like, put it away we're not interested um, okay well one day we will actually talk about Chelsea and that that day maybe next week we're going to have, we're having somebody on who who is a fan and has great knowledge so uh Sean, Everton 3, Bournemouth 0. Everton, all conquering. Uh, they they were so dominant. They were so good. I guess it's Bournemouth. But <laughs> I couldn't help thinking, why don't they play like this all the time? Because not many teams would give them the opportunity to play like that all the time. <laughs> 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 Bournemouth gives you the opportunity to do that. I think we're back in that situation where dice ball works from time to time. You know, loft it up forward. You have your big guys there who are going to carry the ball for you or hold it up. I said this, I think, two, three weeks ago. Having Dominic Calvin-Lewin back has been a, a big boost to Everton. And the thing is, you have him. You pretty much know you have a guy you can trust to get the ball forward, to hold the ball up and link everyone else together. I would say this isn't going to last forever mm-hmm. because you're going to be playing against teams who are going to make it a lot more difficult for you. And you're not going to get away with the kind of things you're getting away with now. It's good for them because I keep thinking in my head there are three teams that are worse than them in the league currently. Uh, Bournemouth is one of them? Yes. Yeah, okay. Luton is definitely the other one. Right, right. And I think, you know, seeing how they've been playing lately, it will work against a lot of the teams that are pressing a lot higher or playing a higher line. I think Bournemouth plays quite a high line mm. and they are going to get hurt in times like this. So it's a, it's a big three points for everything. I, I, I want to move on from 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 this, but I guess the the teams at the bottom have got so few points that they just have to win against each other in order to survive. I mean, you could you could survive on ten points, <laughs> couldn't you? <laughs> yeah, well, Bournemouth is another tricky one because you know they also brought in a really progressive coach, um, Andoni Rayola. I mean, the work he did with Rayo Vallecano in, in, in La Liga last year was the reason why he caught so many eyes across Europe. And in fact, it, he was one of the candidates that Leeds was so desperately trying to get uh, when their season was crumbling uh, towards the tail end of last season when they eventually settled for can't remember Javi Gracia was it mm-hmm. uh, but because Iraola said he didn't want to come because he didn't like the project but then he took on the Bournemouth project so again it goes back to the same question if it's a project then you've got to be prepared to ride through mm. the storm and the difficult moments mm. but if you're going to lose consecutively as much as you're losing right now it all goes back to the board and it's a test of their character and their willpower do you stick with the project or do you shove it down the drain and, and, and swerve elsewhere? Well, that is a perfect launch pad to our next story. Mm. <laughs> Sean, Sean, we're going to Europe now. Mm. Um, specifically, we're going to Amsterdam. Ajax 1, AZ Alkmaar 2. Uh, everything that Keith just said there about projects, etc. Uh, Ajax are having... I mean, I, had, I've, I've, I don't think I have it up now, but they are, they're in the relegation zone. They're in the relegation playoff zone because that's how Dutch football works. But, oh man, every time I think it can't get any worse for Ajax, it gets worse. And the thing is, like, I think a couple of weeks ago, their technical director or something uh, resigned and they brought in Louis van Gaal now into that role. So it's a new project again. The fans want Stein gone, which is the head coach of uh, Ajax. 
I watched bits and pieces of this game and I was thinking, this is not the IX I remember from just three years ago. You can say, yes, you know, they've lost so many big players and so on, but the entire style of play, the entire image of IX Amsterdam is completely gone. It was hectic football. They were lucky to even get a goal in this game. I thought AZ Alkamar outplayed them from start to end, mm. but... This is worrying times for Ajax. I don't see it getting better. They have money to spend. Yeah, I don't know. Where, where is that money though? Yeah, exactly. That's the, the question I've been asking. It, it can't be that, oh, we keep sacking technical directors or we keep sacking coaches, that's we're losing money. They made a lot of money in the last three years from the the, the selling of all their big players, right? But it, none of that has been reinvested if, into players. If, if you think about it, I mean, picking off what Sean just said, players that they've sold, who... Van der Beek went for big money, almost yep. 40 million. Frankie de Jong went for, mm-hmm. oh, what, 70 plus million. Gravenberg. Gravenberg, Matthijs Delict, mm-hmm. um, Kudus most recently. Yep. Um, Licha, Anthony. Licha, Anthony, Edson Alvarez. This, yeah. this whole entry went for 100 million. Mm-hmm. So where has all the money gone to? Because the, the Ajax under the pre- previous regime was very smart because the moment they lose a player, for example, when they lost Matthijs uh, Delict, when they lost Devinson Sanchez, mm-hmm. They got the money and they immediately went back to South America and they were able to accrue Lisandro Martinez at that point, who went on to become a phenomenal player. Then they sold him to Man United. But who have you replaced him with? And therein lies the problem Mm -hmm. because it feels like the process and the structure they had beforehand has just come to a complete halt and a stop. Mm -hmm. And no one knows what's happening with the money, what's happening with Mm -hmm. the transfers. No one knows. I I like the idea of... Louis van Gaal coming back to Ajax. Is he okay though? But I, I, I think there's two ways of looking at it, right? One is, does he still have the philosophy and the ideas that he had for this Ajax team? And I think partially he does because he believes in youth. But the thing is, Ajax currently, and they've done well with this for many a year, they have a good blend of youth and they also have a good blend of let's find players from other leagues in Europe or South America and blend them into this team. Yeah. I think he'll get most out of the youth side of things. I don't know about the overseas aspect of mm. things. Okay. Keish, mm. uh, uh, Italy. Um, I heard that there is a um, a new name in goalkeeping. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. perhaps would be good at Manchester United. Yeah, we're, we're, I'm hearing that as well. Apparently, we're exploring the possibility. Uh, 100 United, million, right? Yeah, 100 million bid. Probably even a 100 million and, plus goalkeeper yeah. bid as well. And, um, and who is he? It's Olivier Giroud. We're looking for him to replay. But you know what's the, the amazing part about this story, right? Uh, everyone um, looks at, at Giroud's... Uh, because it, it was not like he was just static. He made that one crazy mm. save. Yeah. The clips have been going so viral. It was amazing, well. right? Yeah. Full commitment. The kind of stuff that would, you know, get the Milan fans absolutely mm-hmm. adoring you for years after that. Um, but the beautiful part about this is uh, a friend of mine on Twitter shared uh, an excerpt of an interview with Arsene Wenger all those years ago when Giroud was still at Arsenal and Wenger was still in charge. Um, and Wenger was asked about uh, in 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 tough situation, let's say you get your goalkeeper sent off or you have to play an outfield player, who do you think is the best fit for it? And he said, I haven't put a lot of thought into it, so I'm not sure. We haven't trained with, with 
with outfield players and goalkeeping positions before. But if I have to go with a hunch, I'd say Olivier Giroud. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, what Arsene Wenger said all what, those years what ago. What would have been really great is if in the last moment they needed to send the goalkeeper up. <laughs> and then he scores. And then he scores. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, a small, a small segue, but within that game to someone I'm happy to see doing well at AC Milan is Christian Pulisic. Oh, yes. Because when he left Chelsea, he left with so much criticism from the British media and the British pundits about, you know, he couldn't hack it at Chelsea. He was all right at Dortmund. I think a lot of people forgot how good he was at yeah. Dortmund, actually, before he had that big injury. He's gone to AC Milan. They love him there. He's been treated with, like, you know, proper... Yeah. He, he matters to them. And Four goals in seven games. Yeah, <laughs> and to score in the 87th minute to be the goal to take them top. It is slower, slower though. But the thing is, as a player, right, you're playing for one of the biggest, by name and by trophies, teams in the world and AC Milan if you say it's a bit slower but it's also a lot more tactical Mm -hmm. so defenders some of the world's best defenders come from Serie A yeah, 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 yeah. I get uh, pros and cons. It's still slower, though. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in a moment, we're going to go to Spain and Malaysia here on Just for Kicks on BFM 89.9. More football when we come back. Just for Kicks on BFM 89.9. Just for Kicks on BFM 89.9. Welcome back to part four with me and Keish and Sean. Now, Keish, um, Spain, Real Madrid four, Osasuna nil. Real Madrid go top. That's that's it. End of season. But uh, <laughs> I, we we've spoken about how good Jude Bellingham is. But yeah. but he he is good and he yeah, did things. He's he's astonishingly good. But but I'll echo what Carlo Ancelotti said post match. I think Carlo Ancelotti is doing a, a phenomenal job at managing. Uh, the the atmosphere on Jude Bellingham because uh, he very quickly dragged everyone back to the ground and said that hang on a minute it's great that Bellingham is scoring all these goals but he's a midfielder first mm-hmm. and foremost um, don't just judge him by the goals because for all you know the goals might dry up and and there, there is a concern that um, you know now that he's thrown into this limelight with Real Madrid in the absence of a credible striker like Karim Benzema he's getting a lot more freedom up front so he's scoring those goals but there is this fear that that becomes the sole metric by which people judge if Jude Bellingham is good or if he's doing well mm. at Real Madrid and Carlo Ancelotti was very smart in you know nullifying that immediately after the game where he said that he's doing great he's scoring a lot of goals but even if he doesn't score he's still phenomenal and mm. that's the thing about Jude right he doesn't have to score He's got. He's already equaled his goal tally for Borussia Dortmund last year in what ten games, mm-hmm. eleven wow. games this year. Uh, so he he could stop scoring now and he would still be an astonishing football player because he does a lot more than just scoring goals. Just so happened that he's part of a Real Madrid side that doesn't have a world class number nine as we speak. They're all waiting on Kylian Mbappe. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully next well, season. Uh, ne- yeah, I thought you were leading up to like Christmas or something. No, 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 no. Next, next, next season. season. Yeah. Okay, um, Sean. Uh, so Real Madrid are, are top at the moment and Barcelona are third. Atletico Madrid fourth. All very familiar names. <laughs> Girona. Uh, a second. I mean, I had to go and I had to go and Google it. I mean, they're recently promoted. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't do well over the weekend, but uh, the but nonetheless, the it it's business as usual, isn't it? Pretty much. I mean, the the chink in the armor was the fact that yesterday was it, I think it was yesterday that Barcelona drew. And the fact that they actually scored a goal to win the game with Jao Felix, but, you know, VAR stepped in, was offside, blah, blah, blah. Thing is, 
I don't think the like you were saying earlier, the season's over, trapped up. No, I think what you have now with Real Madrid and Barcelona, which I think these will be the two teams going forward till the end of the season that will constantly be at each other's necks. It's gonna be relentless because I don't look at this Real Madrid team and say, yeah, they're gonna win every week because they had games where they drop down in performances and it it tends to happen after grueling that a grueling Champions League game I think the Union Berlin game where Real Madrid mm. played it was a grueling game for them the next game they slowed down a lot it looked like it took a lot out of them same thing happens to Barcelona too where they have a grueling game midweek and then they go into the weekend and they just don't look the same it's very interesting to see and I think that's why you were saying like oh seeing Girona up there is a very surprising mm. surprising name to see there because Atletico Madrid are playing in the Champions League if I'm not mistaken yeah. Barcelona are Real Madrid are Girona, I don't have to worry about yeah. that. They play one game a week, so right. they have enough players yeah. to be fit for every game. Uh, I'd say also keep an eye on Atletico. Um, they had a shaky start, but they've just been winning games non-stop in the last few weeks. And um, Alvaro Morata is, is on form at the moment. Mm-hmm. He's got five goals. Antoine Griezmann has been absolutely insane for them. Um, and, and now there are also talks of uh, Diego Simeone, who has been at the club for 12 years, yeah. talks of him extending what? his stay even extending. more. Extending? Yeah, he's going to be there longer. When is he going to go join Everton? He- <laughs> 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 he's going to stay there. And, and you know what's the beautiful part about Atletico Madrid's story? Saul Niguez, a guy who almost... The forgotten man. The forgotten man who was shipped off to Chelsea on loan and couldn't cut it in the Premier League and everyone thought, there we go, he's going to drop down the, the divisions and... But hey, he's he's back and he's doing really well for Atletico. Okay. So um, we're going to move on now. Well, we cover the world of football here. <laughs> we now go to China, second division. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't. We're going to Malaysia. And Kish, um, it's it's internationals. Yeah. Uh, Malaysia is supposed to be involved in um, the Pesta Bola Merdeka, which is a popular tournament back in the days. Mm. Um, it. It, it stopped and then it was brought back in 2013 and then stopped again. Now, after 10 years, they wanted to bring it back. Um, so it was supposed to be a, a, to- a, a tournament football, two semifinals, a third, fourth placing match and a final with four teams, uh, Malaysia, Tajikistan, um, India, um, as well as Palestine. But but the thing is right now, mm-hmm. um, we're hearing that the Palestinian national team will most likely not be able to travel. Um, unfortunately, which is really grim what they're going through there. Um, so it goes down to a three-team tournament, but we're not sure what the format is going to be like. We're still waiting for FAM um, to confirm. As it stands, Malaysia's if, if it goes to a, a three-team league sort of format where each team plays each other, um, so two games, both can, all, all countries get two games. So Malaysia will have to play India, Malaysia will have to play Tajikistan. Yeah, um, why not? The good thing is both teams are higher than Malaysia in the FIFA rankings. So a victory against these teams will allow Malaysia to climb up the charts a lot better. And it's also uh, been looked at as preparation for the World Cup qualifiers happening in November. Uh, when we play Kyrgyzstan, I think, and also the Asian Cup that happens in January. Okay, so we just wait on news. Yeah, of... I think by tomorrow we should we should have a conclusive uh, outcome in terms of what's going to happen to the tournament. Okay, so uh, well that wraps up the that the, the football that's being played aspect. But before we leave, I want to ask to carry on actually from the the Beckham documentary. Mm. I want to ask you guys for recommendations for for our listeners of. Um, Documentary TV documentaries that you've seen that you think are about football that, that you think are worth uh, worth watching. Uh, Sean, do you have? I'd say I saw one 
uh, late last year or early this year. It's it's on Netflix called Captains. I I really enjoy. It. It's a very short uh, series, but the highlights for me were about the captains of Gabon, which is Pierre Emerick Aubameyang, and the episode on Croatia, which is Luka Modric. Mm. You will see a perspective and a point of view that I don't think many of us has ever got to see for these kind of nations and the struggles that their captains have to go through. And it, it follows them through the journey of the World Cup. Before the World Cup yeah, as well, the qualifications and, and the everything. World Cup itself. So it, it's really in-depth. I really like it. Yeah, okay. Uh, Kish? Um, there, there's two that I'll just throw out there. Um, one is, which is something we just spoke about just now, um, one is definitely Sunderland Till I Die. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of football documentaries is always focused on the big characters or the teams that dominate and the teams and that the, the win. win yeah. The wins mm-hmm. and the triumphs. And, but very few documentaries talk about the disasters and the, the relationship, the symbiotic relationship that exists between clubs in, in, in good, that are going through difficult moments and their fans and how, despite it all, the fans remain the backbone. It was a really beautiful relationship. And, and Sunderland Till I Die was, was a fascinating exploration of that relationship. I know a lot of people look at it as a as a disaster documentary because, <laughs> you know, it was meant to, to document... It wasn't meant to document a disaster. It no, was meant course. to document I think a Sunderland, good season. Sunderland were expecting Correct. Things and even when they, relegate, they got relegated after the first season... Everyone thought the second season of the documentary was going to document them coming back up. <laughs> and then they got relegated again Spoiler for League alert. One. <laughs> so it ended up becoming a really poignant mm. exploration of the relationship between the local community. And it's something that I will always encourage football fans, especially in this part of the world where our relationship with football is very different to how um, people in, in the UK or in Europe or in countries where there's a small, strong community club relationship. Mm. Our relationship with football is very different. So I'd encourage anyone and everyone to go and watch that one uh, because it's absolutely brilliant. But then there's the other one, which uh, Diego Maradona, uh, which, which one? made by Asif Kapadia uh, in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he's the guy that made the the Senna documentary. Mm-hmm. And and Asif Kapadia, what he did was he, he found people uh, in, in Naples and in Buenos Aires that had original footage of Diego Maradona's time at Napoli. And it was all part of a reel just oh, wow. sitting in a bunker. And he digged it up and he pieced it all together to to give a, a, an incredible portrayal of Diego, the struggles he went through, and what he was, what it was, what he was like as a human being, uh, uh, imperfect but still revered yeah. nonetheless. And oh. it was amazing. Yeah, it's a beautiful documentary. I've not heard of that. Have, uh, Sean, have you seen that? No. This has got ninety percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I checked that out. No. Yeah. Uh, and on, on my part, I would just say I haven't finished watching it yet, but I'm watching a very good one about Wayne Rooney. Mm. Yeah. Called Rooney yeah. came out uh, when he was still the manager at Derby, I think. Mm. Yeah, but three um, years ago, three years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And it's 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 pretty, uh, it's quite real. It's I quite mean, honest, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he was a good footballer. Mm. I'm prepared to concede. <laughs> no, he was a, he was really quite amazing. Yeah. So uh, that brings us to the end of this week's show. And I would like to thank Sean Mahotra. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I will see you guys after the international break. Oh, you're running... Oh, okay. Injury, is it? Singapore, guys. I'm hitting Singapore on a transfer, right. a short loan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Kishnan Sundaraisan? Enjoy. Um, United fans, just enjoy the win. Don't analyse, don't bother uh, picking out problems. Just savour the moment. Two right. weeks of peace. Okay. <laughs> and our producer, Daryl Ong, and myself, Cam Raslan. Until next time, uh, here on Just for Kicks on BFM 89.9. Shorters one way, Salas the other. 
more football, tune in Mondays and Fridays at 8pm. Just for kicks on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.